Hello and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Gerald Baker, Head of Trust and Fiduciary Services and Co-Head of the Center for Wealth Planning Excellence at Boston Private. Thank you for joining us today for our second podcast in a series discussing the important considerations, challenges, and essential planning required to manage generational wealth. I am joined once again by Tom Rogerson, President and CEO of Genlay Consulting, an organization that helped families understand the pitfalls of creating a generational legacy and then assists with implementing best practices to avoid them. So Tom, in our last podcast, we covered the steps families can take when facing tough times. Today, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the tools and strategies that are required when a family is first-generation wealthy. Great. Well, yes, thank you, uh, Gerald. Great to be with you again. Um, let me do a just a brief recap of, or, or at least encourage people to think through this notion of first generation transitioning into second generation. Uh, first of all, I'd recommend the people that they go back and listen to the first podcast because we covered a lot of ground in that one. But I would briefly say that um, when first generations uh, wealth, we're talking about people that if they're first generation wealth, they obviously didn't grow up with wealth or they wouldn't be first generation wealth. So they don't have a context of how to talk about or transition children into a higher lifestyle uh, effectively and without feeling a sense of entitlement or uh, some of the potential negatives. So um, what we're finding is that very often first generations will have a mentality of, hey, we want our kids to experience the same motivations that we did. Um, we grew up blue collar and we wanted to, to create something and build something. We were motivated. We want our kids to have the same thing. So they often approach it with, we have to give our kids the blessing of poverty. We'll raise them in this nice lifestyle, but then we'll somehow give them this blessing of poverty where we won't give them anything. So they'll learn how to do it themselves. Um, that's different than the way the first generation grew up. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we'll talk about hopefully today is this notion of, well, then how do you enter in where the reality is of where you are and hopefully then give them the motivations and the inspiration they need going forward. So that's kind of the context, I think, of where we're going today um, to kind of pick up on. But as I said before, I really encourage people to go back and list the first one <laughs> to get a good sense of some of the underpinning and foundation we set last time. That's so true, Tom, and this is meant to be a series, so we would really encourage our listeners to uh, go back to the first podcast so that you see the continuity of, of subject matter and, and, and the breadth and depth of what we are covering. So, Tom, um, in your vast experience in this, in this space, what are some best practices to acclimate and ensure family governance with the wealth that they've acquired as that first generation uh, acquirer of, of new wealth? Uh, great point. The, uh, I think the first and foremost is, is really huge. And that's uh, the notion of you need to have family meetings. Uh, every family, uh, you know, as I said last time, my wife and I have now had a chance to work with over 270 individual families where we've run family meetings and got them started in this process. But we've also interviewed an additional over 200 families that have uh, done this uh, pretty effectively, uh, multi-generationally. And what we're finding is families that are succeeding are having family meetings and families that are failing don't. 
So there needs to be intentionality. And as far as family meetings, these are not meetings where you talk about money. These are meetings where you talk about the family, really getting to know, to, to know and to be known, to see and to be seen, to really feel a sense of connection and understanding about the individuals in the family. So um, we find that to be kind of a critical thing. Family meetings are usually are not one per year. That's too few. It's very hard to remember what happened a year ago in the conversation one a month is too many. Um, we actually find maybe even one a quarter is too many people saying, we're busy. We've got too much going on. But we think the sweet spot to, show, to shoot for is every six to nine months. So minimum every six months. You can do it more frequently if you've got the time and availability. But six to nine months is kind of a minimum guideline to shoot for. Um, and then the, the other piece of it, I'd say that's really critical, because that, that's kind of number one, the family meeting. But number two, it, that equally really important is elevating roles in the family. It is very common that a family of wealth, uh, you know, oftentimes they have a fit family business or the, and they start giving the impression that the roles for the next generation that are important have to do with the family business. They have to do with managing the money or investing or help, understanding wealth management related issues and all that kind of stuff. And that can start to give family members a sense that there are two tiers of important people in our family. There are those that are in the upper tier that are involved in roles in the family business and wealth management and things of the nature. And then there are the people that are less than. Now, I know that's not the intent of the parents, but that is absolutely the feeling that next generations have, that we are less than. We spouses, perhaps, or we children that are not in the business are less than those other people that are much more important. Well, then how do you uh, give people a sense of a role in the family? It requires having roles beyond the roles of the business and anything to do with money. Um, roles like who's our chief family relationship officer. Actually, there are families that have roles like that. Who's our family culture officer? Who's our next family meeting um, organizer uh, officer? So that we've got, and those ideally would be roles given to people or that uh, hopefully people would step into those roles that are not involved in the family business or money management. And these would be elevated roles. They are important. Very often, actually, families that of more significant wealth will compensate people for some of their time in these roles. Um, if it's important, why not pay for it a little bit? It doesn't have to be at the same level of the family business. But I think those are some of the, the best practices, this notion of being intentional, having family meetings, and giving people roles that are outside of the money management and business-related roles. And would you say that that part of that is to ensure a, a level of interdependence among family members and make sure that that interdependence and the culture of, of depending and on each other and relying on each other, these roles are really meant to help facilitate a, a culture that maintains that connectivity? Because as, as we had discussed in our prior podcast, one of the unique components of having wealth is that it affords independence, uh, and in this case, family independence from each other. Um, so would you say that these roles are meant to help create a, a construct of governance that facilitates that interdependence and maintains a culture of, of community amongst the family? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it sounds like second nature that, of course, wealth would uh, families would use their wealth in, to encourage interdependence, but they usually don't. They do just what you said. They allow the wealth to, as we talked about last time, to allow separation, independence, go to your own private school, go to your live, live in Colorado instead of Massachusetts or go wherever you want to be. And and although that's wonderful, they don't end up using some of their wealth intentionally to get the family together to some of those things I said before, no one to be known, to, to trust and to be trusted. As we said last time, the biggest reason that families are failing at preserving wealth and preserving family is due to lack of trust around group decision making. They're, they don't make group decisions, so they don't have a context, and so um, they they often use the wealth to separate. These ideas of having family meetings, um, you know, our mission statement for our company, Genleg, as I mentioned last time, was this notion of we are here to introduce and reintroduce a family to itself repeatedly with metrics and tools. And it sounds like, well, that's awfully simplistic, but they really don't know each other and they don't know the strengths that each other brings to the table. And so we are providing opportunities uh, and we think the family needs to do the same thing, providing opportunities to evidence your strengths and abilities, your communication style, your values by the activities we do together. And so that's why, um, yes, the interdependence that is often fostered is group decision-making around non-business related things like family philanthropy, like family vacation planning. That's a, that's a valuable thing. Um, like, uh, you know, how do we educate the family about um, what it means to be, what's our family history? Are we archiving that? Are we telling the stories? Um, one of the things that I think is really powerful that we help families with is a, a family interview process. When we get together, do we celebrate each other? Do we, let's say, hey, Gerald, you know, what are your challenges this year? What are your successes? What are your failures? What did you learn? Um, and, and can we help you actually present at the family meeting on all those things so we can learn not only about you, but from you? These are the kind of intentional things we're seeing that build the knowledge of each other, which allows the interdependence and that allows the preservation of family. That's such an important component, right? When you talk to, to wealthy families, particularly first generation, they're thinking about the investments portfolio. They're thinking about tax positioning. They're thinking um, about uh, uh, estate planning. And those are all very finite, specific skills uh, and, and objectives. But really, that soft skill of creating cohesive uh, family entity and, and sharing with each other and understanding each other is often, so often, um, over, overlooked. So, Tom, entrepreneurs are experts in working collaboratively and building culture in their professional lives. Um, that, that's what's helped them as entrepreneurs and helped them to create their wealth. But oftentimes, applying the same rigor to family goals gets overlooked. Um, what do you think is a major driver of those entrepreneurs who are so successful in creating that team culture and, and a, a unified vision getting overlooked in their personal lives and their, specifically with their families? Yeah, um, and it's a great observation. You're right. 
entrepreneurs, uh, the people that we work with are, are most of the time first generation leading in a second generation. Not not always, but most of the time. And um, they uh, most of the time, then if they're first generation going into second, they built wealth by building a business. And when they talk about their management team, they would actually talk quite a bit about how intentional they are. In fact, entrepreneurial organizations will encourage them to, you've got to think through really carefully who's on the bus, meaning who is your management team? Do you have the right person as CEO, the right person as CFO, the right person as the, the human resource person, the right person you know, for marketing? Um, okay, that makes tremendous sense. We're trying to learn their abilities and, and fit them into a role. Well, those same people go home and they don't have they don't have this vision of the purpose of their family as if, you know, like they do at, at work. At work, they know there's a purpose. We want to grow this thing. We want to preserve and grow this thing. So they don't have the same vision. And so they don't have a vision of roles for individuals and a place for them to, to evidence those roles. So these entrepreneurs will build teams, sometimes powerful teams, long lasting teams. We'll talk to entrepreneurs that have, they'll say, oh, yeah, our, our CFO has been there for 20 years or 15 years. And um, we just and we're transparent with each other. We will uh, and we'll get together as a management team and do an offsite where we bring in a consultant to learn about Myers-Briggs and our abilities and our we will intentionally get to know and dive deep. And, and we and we can be transparent. We can be honest. I need to tell you what I think you did badly last month. Well, these same entrepreneurs that have that mentality at work go home and they think, um, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to get into conflict at home. Uh, and they they end up creating an environment at home that is a wonderful, but it's more social. It's not as consequential. It doesn't have a purpose per se. And so they often allow total independence, the point of not knowing each other anywhere near as well as the management team knows each other. And when we get together and do family meetings for families, that's one of the biggest aha moments for the entrepreneurs and uh, and their family where they go, yeah, mom, mom and dad talk about their management team that they know so incredibly well. They work really well together. And yet, you're right, we haven't encouraged any of that same activity at home. Such an interesting observation. And, it, and it's such a telling thing that, you know, and it's a natural instinct, I suppose. You You come home and you want to sort of let go of the structures and confines of what you live in at work all day to enjoy your family, not recognizing that you're inadvertently potentially causing negative consequences by not helping create an, an organized and thoughtful structure around how your family interacts with each other, how they communicate uh, and understand their goals and objectives and, and hopes and dreams. So Tom, in working with families to create roles like chief family relationship officer, chief culture officer, some of the, the soft skills that, that go along with some of the substantive skills of, of planning for, for business, planning for estate planning, philanthropic, et cetera, um, how do you try to foster empathy and a team-oriented approach with families uh, over time? Yeah, Gerald, great question. That word empathy, how do you get to a place of uh, true empathy with each other? That requires getting to a place of understanding. And what we find is uh, uh, 
parents or partners working together, uh, trying to get to the next generation, their intent, their purpose uh, is really powerful and important. But it's really important that they spend time trying to get to an understanding of where the children are. So we find that family uh, communication or interview process is very helpful to give the family and work with the family so that they come up with what they think are the interview questions for family members to get to that place of understanding, to know and to be known beyond just hey, how's it going? Or how's your education? Um, to really go through what are the challenges you face? What's keeping you up at night? What, what successes have you had? What failures? What did you learn by those? Um, you know, what are your challenges going forward? How can we help you? That's different. That's much more intentional. And we find that very helpful. Um, one thing that we find very um, interesting is how uh, parents think, oh, no, 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 we're really good at this. We're really good at this. When anything comes up, we're really open and we deal with it. Well, that means that they're, they're dealing with when something comes up, they're dealing with the tip of the iceberg. Um, and just like an iceberg, you're only seeing about 10% of it. 90% of it is below the surface. If you're waiting for presenting problems to come up for you to deal with, uh, that's a limit. You're, you're missing the, the opportunity to get at the 90% of the issues that are starting to fester that are below the surface. This interview process or this process of family meetings to really get to know each other is to, is to be able to get at that below the surface, what do we know each other? This notion of to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to trust and to be trusted is critical for a group of people that want to work together and stay together multi-generationally. It doesn't mean they have to be best friends. Um, but, uh, you know, what we find is oftentimes children uh, of a family or, or, you know, of partners going forward, children in, in, in we work with a lot of blended families where there were children from both sides of the family as well. But children, um, you know, parents would often indicate to the children they want them to be, as we said before, independent, but they don't encourage them to learn how to work together. And we think that this um, below the surface as opposed to just dealing with the tip of the iceberg issues, allows them to get to know each other at a much deeper level and be able to potentially work together because they know where each other are coming from and they're, they have empathy towards each other. They know their motivations and they can hopefully work towards a common cause and a common goal. And usually their desire for a common goal is we like the idea of our children knowing each other down the road as well. We like the idea of our children knowing their cousins. And um, well, that takes intentionality because very few families know third cousins. And, uh, and families of wealth have the ability to use some of their resources to invest in second, third, fourth cousins knowing each other. And that actually can become part of the plan. Um, and this is why I love working with Boston Private, because if we can help a family identify some of these goals as a family, you all can then help them better put together a plan that encompasses that desire and implement that plan uh, and then help them uh, multi-generationally as a fiduciary going forward. So that's why we think what we do is really um, very simpatico with what you're doing at Boston Private and Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so anyway, hope that helps. So Tom, could you give us an example of how you see the work that you do blending with the work that we do? Yeah, and it's a very important point. Um, 
that I'll give you a good example that we found that families that establish a family meeting process, um, if they're doing a really good job and everyone's loving it and uh, they get together every year, maybe a couple of times a year and it's all going well, the parents assume that when mom and dad are gone or the part partners are gone, uh, whether they're you know, uh, separate uh, second marriages, whatever it would be, or, or, you know, significant others, as they're thinking about what the future would look like, they're assuming that, well, the next generation is going to keep doing this because they had such a good time doing it so far. And that wasn't happening because we went from one couple organizing the family meeting and paying for it to now three, if we have three kids or whatever, four, whatever, two, whatever. And, um, and it wasn't happening because inevitably one of the kids was saying every year, Hey, I'm busy. I've got other things going and you know, you want me to pay for it. I mean, I'm renovating a kitchen. I got other things to do. So um, we're finding that in the, the, the parents endow the process as part of their plan then, but that means they have to plan for it and they have to have it set aside, then it's endowed. And so if they have three kids and one of the kids can't go this year, the other two is saying, well, we'll miss you, but we're going to spend your share in this year's meeting. And uh, guess who wants to be there the next year if they have fun and they're doing. So we're finding, um, I actually designed this concept of a trust for this with an attorney named Marvin Blum, and we call it a FAST, a Family Advancement Sustainability Trust. But it's the kind of thing that you and the planning work that you do at Boston Private can encourage people to include as part of their plan, endowing it. Um, we can help them get the plan, the process in place, but that then becomes part of the plan and part of the ongoing management and continuity that you're then helping them with as a fiduciary into the next generation. So to me, that's a great example that the family governance process leads to the plan, which leads to the continuity of the family. That's such an interesting point, Tom. You know, oftentimes with with families that are looking to uh, change or their estate plans or um, establish new ones, we encourage them when they're looking to to focus on family governance to set up a requirement that trustees engage with families at periodic intervals throughout the year, and that the tr the trustees are directed to pay the expenses of the family members to gather together, whether they're traveling from near or far, to facilitate that sort of endowment of family engagement. So a really, really important point, and I appreciate you bringing it up here today. Tom, you've really hit the nail on the head. At Boston Private, we really strive to foster uh, an objective uh, that focuses on family legacy planning, and that, that means we absolutely need to help foster intergenerational communication and cohesion um, because legacy planning encompasses many factors, including creating, protecting, and passing down a generational legacy. Boston Private's team approach ensures that the outcome is a transition from the diversity of individuals and preferences to unity of vision which leads to continuity of the family's total wealth, both tangible and intangible. I'd like to thank our listeners today. We hope that you found this perspective helpful. I want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your Boston Private Wealth Advisor to discuss your needs or elements of today's conversation. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission. By visiting bostonprivate.com, you can find more information on the important topic we discussed today. And while you're there, 
You are welcome to subscribe to our newsletters if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox. You can follow Boston Private on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter for our timely thought leadership. And be sure to please subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives podcast wherever you prefer to listen. Thank you for tuning in and thanks for joining me today, Tom. Well, thank you, Gerald. It's a pleasure always and look forward to working with you going forward. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, and other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by calling us at 800-422-6172 or emailing at info at bostonprivate.com. Boston Private Bank and Trust Company has been merged into and is now Silicon Valley Bank. Banking, lending, and trust products or services under the name Boston Private are offered by Silicon Valley Bank, a California bank with trust powers. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve System and is an equal housing lender. Silicon Valley Bank is the California bank subsidiary of SVB Financial Group, NASDAQ, SIVB. SVB Wealth Advisory, member FINRA and SIPC, SEC Registered Investment Advisor,